Good evening. Thank you so much for inviting me to address you tonight on the topic of prophecy. Oops. We need to go back to the beginning. Thank you. There we go. Thank you. I remember so distinctly the moment on the 31st of August, it was a Sunday morning at nine o'clock, 1997, and I was on the point of going across to the church to help with the service. I was serving on staff in a big Anglican church in Cape Town, and the husband of a friend rang up. He had been a British policeman, and they lived in South Africa in Cape Town, and he said, Princess Diana has died. It was a real shock. And at the end of that week, I walked down the road on the Saturday, and uh, I was conducting a Holy Spirit day for an Alpha course for a church in the city. And at the lunch break, I walked down into the uh, local cafe, a corner shop, and on the screen was the funeral procession. And later on that afternoon was the funeral or the beginning of the celebration of the life of Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And why I raise this is that before Diana died, there had been a prediction, there had been a prophecy from a woman in Sheffield which we had read about in one of the Christian magazines, that the whole of the UK would be covered with flowers. And the cortege going up the motorway was part, was the fulfillment of that prophecy. People want to know, I was standing actually, uh, one of the things I do to sustain myself in this country, apart from teaching theology and writing books and conducting seminars and conferences, is to live in a cottage which is a grace and favor cottage. And so I do some cleaning for the lady of the big house. So I was standing there on Friday and busy dusting and she was talking to me. And as she was talking to me, she said, you know, we don't know the future. It would have been wonderful to have known the situation with our son. And I looked at her, I said, funny you should say that. I said, I'm speaking on Monday night in Leamington Spa to a group of women on the gift of prophecy. I said, we can know the future. Christian prophecy is part and parcel of our heritage in Christ. And I do believe, as I said to Anne earlier, that the Lord Jesus is very much in the business in this decade, at this moment in time, of causing the English prophets to arise. I do believe with all my heart as I travel here and in Europe that actually God is on the move. The English lion has been chained up for far too long. Why should France have all the good prophets? 
This is a slide of the Languedoc. Now, the Languedoc, uh, you'll find a little description if you were to buy one of the books at the back of the uh, table. Um, <clears throat> the Languedoc, sorry, picked the wrong book. Um, study this book of the prophets of the Cévennes, the little prophets of the Cévennes in the 17th century and the early Quaker revival century here in, in England, across the channel there were impulses of the Holy Spirit going on, and one of the key hallmarks of both France and England at this time was the release of prophets. So the old French province of Languedoc stretched over the Cévennes into the valleys of the Upper Loire to the north and into the Upper Garonne to the west, to the Pyrenees to the south, and the Rhone Hills on the east. Its terrain comprises mountains, ravines, chestnut forests, vineyards, and fertile fields. By, 1950, by 1573, Languedoc had separated into a Huguenot enclave. And it was this Huguenot enclave which became the little church of the desert. Now, it strikes me tonight that streams in the desert is a very apt title when we're thinking about prophecy because what happened in the Languedoc 15 years at this time when the Huguenot French Protestant church was under severe persecution, huge amounts of prophesying began to break out through the mouths of babes and sucklings and children began to prophesy and see the future. And one of those remarkable children uh, was, was a girl called Isabeau Vancey. And Isabeau Vancey, born in 1673, uh, died in 1688, was called the Little Prophet of Sao in the Drome. And the thing about Isabeau Vancey is that she was so little when she began to prophesy. There was a, a theologian at the time called Pierre Jury um, who was egging on the French Revolution. He was egging on the, the, the revolution of the church, you know, to stand up. And while these people were escaping into the ravines and caves and mountainous regions of the Languedoc to worship freely because they were forbidden to worship freely, the assemblies of the desert gathered on the Lord's Day. But in the houses and hamlets and all over the Languedoc were these little children beginning to prophesy. And one of those is described by Pierre Jury like this when he really went to examine Isabeau Francais. She said, the substance of her talks is the biblical text from which source she refutes the papal controversies. She takes note of the converters to Catholicism who have changed their religion and sold their souls for money. Even her father is moved to confess his renunciation of Protestantism. Her relatives marvel at something in her that even sparkles, which seems to increase at her capture, transportation to Grenoble, and examination in Crete. She endures interrogation for 15 days with shaven head, stripped of clothing, a search for charms, and exorcisms by priests. Her ecstasies persist in prison and she preaches from her room at the very top of the prison so that all the street can hear. She preaches in her sleep. 
She speaks in the Languedoc, sometimes, which is the language of Parisian Paris, without, uh, uh, you know, knowing the language. She prophesies so that people are converted. She goes into a state sometimes where nothing will waken her, not even, they say, pricking and pinching. <laughs> And then she emerges from this sleep speaking the words of God. And sometimes she preaches sermons within that trance-like state. Now, interestingly enough, on Thursday last week, I was talking to a young uh, Caprasian girl, an Italian girl from the island of Capri, who's over here to marry an English man. And I know her because we did a mission to Capri some, a few years ago. And I've been there many times and ministered there. But she was explaining to me that uh, she'd been on a mission trip from a church in Toronto across to France. And she said it was extraordinary, she said to me, how the little children were so open to the Holy Spirit. And some of the exercises they did was that they would pray in the week before at their meetings during the week. And then they would receive words from God and pictures which would be taken to the assembly gathered on a Sunday and they would deliver those, and the people received them and were blessed from the mouths of children. That heritage persists uh, in, in, in the Savannah today. And this is the, uh, the little monument to Izzy Beauvancet um, there in the Languedoc as people are praying, particularly in a YWAM base at saint paul chateau and also in the village of Vezinobre, there's a prophetic school to revive, you see, this French impulse. And by Jove, when they begin, it's amazing. They really do strike when the iron's hot and they go for it, as we've seen recently in, you know, so many, uh, the Je suis Charlie, you know, revolution, if you like. There was such a spark there, wasn't there? Now, to channel that into a godly fervor and fire is extraordinary. Now, as we'll see um, in this French prophesying, it wasn't all right. And that was where people become nervous of prophesying because they think sometimes it leads us into dangerous waters. And so this happened in France as well, as has happened in this country from time to time. But you know, even in England, in the 17th century, uh, Christopher Hill, the English historian, says that every Englishman walked around with a prophecy in his back po pocket, whether it be for an invasion or a mistress. <laughs> Prophesying in England also had its day. And uh, so I do believe that God is in the process of renewing prophecy. And this is me in the Languedoc prophesying. <laughs> we went on a little trip to go and do a, re a reconnaissance of this area. And uh, that, that, that's uh, just an interesting sort of picture. Now, as we've seen, prophesy can occur through sleeping or waking, dreaming or praying, reading or seeing. Sleeping or awake, dreaming or praying, reading or seeing. Prophesying is diverse. It has to do with hearing God's voice. 
And the voice of God is very clear. <clears throat> because Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice. And when the voice of the Lord is heard, the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament is instructed to write down clearly what I reveal to you so that it can be read at a glance. Put it in writing because it is not yet time for it to come true. Prophesying is not prophecy until it is delivered. It must be communicated. I know people who have boxes of prophecies. There are some vicars who have boxes of prophecies, neatly filed. We have books that people have said things to us, we've written them down. Sometimes I know there are people who have prophecies they've never given because they're too afraid. And yet you know that God said that to you. And the time will come where it's too late to deliver it. You said, oh, I'm waiting for the right time. <laughs> what time is that, may I ask? What time is it? See, when God speaks and we hear and we know we've heard and it is a message for some person, it could even be for the prime minister. I know people who have given messages to the prime minister. Why shouldn't we? God wants to communicate with us. He wants to take us aside and speak clearly. And when we've heard him, to write it down is a really good idea so we don't forget what he said. And when the time is right to, to give it, to deliver it, to make it happen. So prophecy is vision, something yet to come. It is a preview, if you like, or a foreshadowing. It could be a prediction. It could be telling us exactly what's going to happen next. It belongs to the ears and it belongs to the eyes. It is sound and it is sight. Prophecy is audiovisual. It is the realm of the senses. It could even be smell. Prophecy belongs in the subconscious and in the conscious. It can be in the mind, a clear thought. It can be in the subconscious dream state. It can be in technicolor, in a vision, as though it was just happening in front of you. I remember lying at the swimming pool, actually, um, in West Africa at a hotel in between some sessions of teaching. And God showed me in a very clear 
a vision as I was wide awake. In front of me, I could see the state of the Gambia. I knew who was controlling it. And when I went back and I told our hostess who'd brought me there to speak what I'd seen, she said, that is so accurate. That is exactly how the nation is run. These are the powerful families, and this is the person from Sierra Leone to whom they relate for their power. An open vision, a sleeping dream, a word passes through the mind. We'll look at that in a little more detail a bit later on. I wanted to take you, though, to the New Testament. If you have a Bible, it might be good to look it up. If you don't, it's not um, a, a, a major problem. But if you would like to turn in the New Testament to John's Gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so the fourth Gospel in the New Testament... If you would turn in John's Gospel to chapter 11. Which is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And in this story, there are two main players who are in the house at Bethany. And one is called Martha and the other is called Mary. And these are two sisters who have from time to time given Jesus hospitality. Their brother Lazarus is dead. Four days on, Jesus turns up. And Martha goes to her sister and she says this in verse 28 of John chapter 11. Martha went to her sister saying, the teacher is here and is calling you. He is calling you. Now, in chapter 12, if you go over to chapter 12, because Lazarus is raised from death, in chapter 12, verse 3, Jesus is reclining at table with Lazarus, raised from death. What a dinner party. Sitting there, transported in glory. Just sitting there, you know. He'd come back to life. And Martha, of course, well, we know what she was doing, don't we? You know, dashing about, serving them. And what was Mary doing? Have a look at verse 3. What was Mary doing? Well, she took this jar of such expensive ointment and she went and she poured it all over his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And then it says at the end of that verse that the house was filled with the aroma, with the fragrance of the oil. How did Mary know to anoint the feet of Jesus? Jesus says, she's anointed my feet for burial. 
What was it that Mary got that Martha didn't get? If we turn back to Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verse 41 and 42, we see that Mary was the one who had, in fact, from verse 39, just have a look at that word there, she had seated herself at the feet of Jesus. It's an interesting uh, Greek verb there, that she'd actually put herself at the feet of Jesus. She was just seated there at the feet of Jesus. And when Martha chastises her for not helping, what does the teacher say in, in verse 42? One thing is a necessity. And Mary has chosen the good share. One thing. One thing is, is necessary. Huh. I've heard so many sermons on this, you know, the personality of Martha, the personality of Mary, how we're all different and so forth, you know. But actually, Jesus says it so clearly, one thing, one thing. And Mary has chosen it. That's the good share, that's the good portion. To be seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his voice. Oh. So that one thing is needed. That's it. And so when the one thing is needed, and the Mary does the one thing, she knows that when the teacher comes to Lazarus's tomb, calling for her. And it was as though when Mary went to the teacher, calling her, Jesus kind of went into action. <laughs> he saw her tears and he went into action. It took a woman, Mary at his feet, Mary anointing him, Mary at the tomb, to provoke Jesus into action. Paul Tonnerre said that, the Swiss psychologist, about Mary, the other Mary, the mother of Jesus at the feast. Do whatever he tells you to do with the wedding jars. Do whatever he tells you to do. His time has come. She knew. This Mary knew. She knew because she was seated at the feet of Jesus and so she knew when she anointed the feet of Jesus, the whole place was filled with the fragrance of the oil. She knew what she was doing. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. She knew who Jesus was. And in a prophetic action, she anoints him for his burial. In the same way, Jesus is calling you. There has been a prophetic word about tonight that many of you think that you've got nothing left. But actually, Jesus is calling you. He's calling you to sit at his feet, to hear his word, to see his future, and then to speak and to act. Because the teacher has need of you. He can't do it without you. 
In his earthly state, Jesus needed his mother. In his spiritual risen state, Jesus needs us. To draw us aside, to speak to us so that we might hear his voice and know what to do next. But how? What does prophecy look like? Because prophecy is not some strange, ethereal, vague, or flighty thing that only certain people with long dresses and long hair and beads who sit on the edges of the church um, do. Or are a bit flaky, who don't quite fit. There is something about prophecy which is given, well, it is being given that sort of, you know, press. And sometimes it is those people who bring revelation. It is the very people that we'd rather not hear from who bring us the thoughts in the mind of God. Because God has no favorites. And we have to grow up and accept that if God can speak through a donkey, well, he can speak through me too. (laughs) What does prophecy look like? Here are some top ten tips for what prophecy might look like. And a little later on, uh, we might be experimenting with some of these, but don't take fright and run away because this is a very safe environment. So what are some of the top ten? The first is to do with the word of God. Words. What's in a word? The first thing about a word, and there's a proverb 25 verse 11 if you'd like to check it out something my father always used to say Proverbs 25 11 it's a lovely proverb so back in the Old Testament like apples of gold inlaid with silver is a word that is aptly spoken. A word in season, a word that is just given to somebody, just brings life. The second kind of word is a biblical text, a scripture. I was visiting friends over the weekend, and uh, on Sunday morning, the little girl went, I said, go and fetch your Bible, because she'd become very absorbed with the Bible. Uh, When she stayed with me, we bought her a Bible, and I said, what's the reading for today? She's nine, and she's got a little devotional with three-minute, you know, little devotions, and she read it. It was the light on the hill from Matthew chapter 5. The city set on the hill cannot be hidden. You can't put a lamp under a lampstand. You've got to put it on top to make it shine in the house. Well, that afternoon, 
um, her father asked me to pray for him. He'd been having some struggles at work. And uh, it was as though God was trying to take his light out from under the table and put it on top of the table because he was being asked to be really, really uh, promoted in his business to give these presentations in central London. And he was feeling very inadequate and anxious. But that text from his daughter said, tell him what you read this morning. The light must be put on top of the table. It's time. It's your time now. A Bible text, a scripture, you know, speaks directly into the situation. A song, it could be a spiritual song. I had an email recently from the Gambia, from the son of the, the woman who took me out there several years ago. Out of the blue, four, five years, seven years later, he said, Jenny, he said, he was, I think, 12 at the time, you know, just a little teenager when I was out there. And he said, can you tell me the, the, the two songs that you played over us? It was this youth camp, you know, and we got them listening to songs and being quiet. And the young uh, woman who was with me from Cambridge University decided that she would just play these sort of songs over them. Um, to, just to minister to the children. And we did that, and this particular song, it was Fix It, the Coldplay song. He said, can you just give me the, 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 the lyrics for that song? And there was another Christian song as well. And so songs can really be meaningful. In the Bible, there are many, many songs. There were songs of praise, and Mary had a song. You know, she had the song they call in the Anglican church, the Magnificat. You know, it magnifies God. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We call that the Magnificat from the Latin to magnify, you see. So Mary prophesied. She was filled with the Holy Spirit and she prophesied. And when you have these soaking sessions and you pray over pregnant women, what are you prophesying into these little fetuses that they will become one day? My soul magnifies the Lord because he's raised me up. A song, can he raises me up, that song. Not one direction, I can't remember who, you know, he, yeah, exactly. He raised me up. He raises me up. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there are different songs, aren't there, out there. And sometimes the secular media has got hold of the truth uh, to, to speak a word. So what's in a word? And then secondly, the second category is what do you see? So not only is it what we you know, can read, but also what do we see in, in the spiritual realm? Um, and the, the scriptures, if you might know from Amos the prophet, for instance, in the Old Testament, we don't need to look it up now, but if you've got time later, go back and read Amos chapter 7 and 8. It's full of these uh, pictures, says to the prophet, say, um, this is the Lord standing there says, what do you see, Amos? He said, I see a basket of ripe fruit. The time is ripe for my people Israel. And that was the prophetic word we had for you lot tonight, actually. It's your time. The time is ripe. The basket of summer fruit. What do you see? Did Amos actually see it? Or did he see it in a mental picture? We're not sure. It's not very clear, but it is a picture of some sort. The other sort of thing could be, what do we see in a person? 
Jesus in John chapter 1 saw Nathanael. He said, I saw you under the fig tree. The prophet in the Old Testament was called the ra'ah, the one who ra'ahs, who sees. What do you see when you look at somebody? I was standing in a, I'd been on a walk one day with some South Koreans, I think, and we were standing in this pub somewhere in the depths of Somerset. And I saw in the landlord behind the pub an interest in spiritual things. Don't ask me how. I just knew, and we got talking, and he told me, this young guy, how he'd been in a very fast car in France, going incredibly quickly, and he was, he hit, he would just avoided a barrier. The car was a total write-off, but he was completely saved. And we agreed that God had saved his life. And we spoke about prophecy and about seeing the future and what he might be for. The potential in him. Why had God rescued him? So we see in people. And the next thing is that sometimes God gives us signs. So the baby in the manger in Luke chapter 1 was a sign, wasn't it? The shepherds were told, this is the sign that you will see a baby in a manger. The sign is Emmanuel, God with us. The sign of Jeremiah chapter 18, when the Lord said, go down to the potter's house and see the clay pot. And this is a center for healing. And sometimes you might come for ministry here and you feel as though the pot has been all broken up. And then God takes that same clay and he makes a new pot out of the same clay. That's what Jeremiah saw in the house of the potter. He really did go down to the house of the potter. Sometimes we were, Juliet and I were walking the other day in a field of cows. And you know, it was a frightening experience because they came at us from all angles. And you know, I thought if we climb that tree, we'll just be stuck here. And if we run, they're going to charge after us. And so I was saying in the mighty name of Jesus, <laughs> we declare you will not come near us. And Juliet was going towards him and saying, shoo, shoo. <laughs> and we were a great team as we took all our authority until finally we saw the fence at the end of the field and we thought we won't run because if we run, they'll charge. But we kept taking authority in the name of Jesus against this evil... <laughs> And we managed to get to the end, <laughs> to this fence. We managed to get over the fence, and our hearts were beating. And then Juliet said, there's a fox. <laughs> and then we saw a deer, and then all was well. Because when we see a deer, well, we know that God is with us, don't we? There's a hind's feet on high places. But when we see foxes, we know that the little foxes ruin the vineyards, it tells us in the Song of Solomon. Be careful of the little foxes. If we see buzzards in the sky, we know that it's a sign of favor or kites flying. Signs, you know, in the climate, signs in the weather. Um, signs in, in... I went to an art exhibition recently, the Tate Modern. I was in, just finished teaching a class in London and I went into Marlene Dumas' art exhibition and I came out so depressed. If this is the state of the world, oh, you know, 
So what do we see? And then seeing and praying in light and sound. When the light of God came upon Hildegard von Bingen, the German prophet, she was suffused with the light in the 12th century, and this light came upon her, a luminous light that she beheld in her 43rd year. The brightness which she saw was called the living light, and in it she saw visions of the emperor, Henry II, Eleanor of Aquitaine. She saw the state of nations. She saw the collapse of kingdoms. There was that Russian starets, Father Aristocle, a hundred years ago, who was visited by Mother Barbara, who then went to Jerusalem, and told us what he'd said to her, the demise of England losing all her colonies, two world wars, the fall of communism, and an English queen who would be really very devout and good, and that England would be saved by its praying women. Seeing and praying. Paul, on the road to Damascus, a light surrounded him. He saw in the light Jesus. And then audiovisual. So we see, we hear, we have dreams and visions, and the scriptures are full of these opportunities for seeing the Lord. Joseph, the dreamer, the waking vision, the prophet John in the revelation of St. John, in a waking vision, sees Jesus walking among the lampstands. A sleeping vision, Daniel awakens from sleep, having seen in his sleep the next stages of the kingdom. So go fly. The teacher is calling you. He wants you at his feet. And I'm going to call Caroline up, actually, to play over us because I really do believe that God is wanting to, to draw us um, to his feet. And so I'm just going to ask you to be, to be quiet. And as she plays over us, to, uh, to allow Jesus to draw you because he wants to speak to you.